All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. everybody to another episode of the GT Power Hour. I am your host of Rory Sweeney and as always I'm here with Glenn Thomas and we have a very special guest is uh, Joe Bowering, the independent market monitor for PJM Interconnection. Welcome Joe, how are you sir? Thank you, doing well. And Glenn, how are you this month? Doing great, happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, so it's feeling more like we're into the winter months now at this point. But there's plenty of heat going on in PJM's markets and at their stakeholder meetings and particularly with FERC and that's why we're here to sit down and talk to Joe. Let's just start with the big topic that everyone's been discussing. It's the MOPR order, the minimum offer price rule. We discussed this, Glenn and I, on our last podcast, but a lot of our audience thought that our takes on it needed some more expert opinion. So that's why we brought you in, Joe. At this point, you've filed a request for clarification, so we've seen that. But what has been your takeaway from the order? Sure. I level. I think the order is coherent, consistent, logical, and sets forth a strong support for competitive markets. So, as I've said elsewhere, if it had happened two years ago, I would have thought it was the absolute perfect order. But it is consistent and logical and coherent for the first time, I think, in addressing some of these capacity market issues, and particularly the MOPR question. So I think it's a good order. Joe, I want to jump in there because I heard you say that quote before. What happened in the past two years, if you could clarify. Yeah, so we were the original authors of Moper X. This was a modified form of Moper X. And in the meantime, we proposed something called SMR, Sustainable Market Rule. And there's really only one difference or one logical difference between what the commission did and our SMR, and that is what's the definition of a competitive offer for a new unit and an existing unit. Our proposal in the SMR was that the definition of a competitive offer for both new and existing units is net avoidable cost, net ACR. The Commission's view is that the competitive offer for an existing unit is net ACR, but the competitive offer for a new unit is net cost new entry or net cone. And the Commission, to their credit, very carefully considered our arguments. They spent some time on it and they rejected it. And they rejected it because they believed that our proposal would have permitted entry as a result of subsidies, but also that they did not agree that we were correctly defining competitive offer. So I think we are correctly defining competitive offer. I think in the capacity market, the definition of a competitive offer is net ACR. That is the only definition currently in the rules, as, as a matter of fact. Now, if we applied that, would it permit subsidized units to enter? Yes, it would. But it would only permit the amount of megawatts that were actually appropriate and consistent with reliability. So, for example, for a solar wind resource, there would be significantly discounted. But we continue to believe that the correct definition is net ACR. That would have basically solved all the problems that people, I think, have identified with the MOPA order to date. It would have let almost all renewable resources clear in the market and would have adjusted the megawatts required for thermal. But in the very short term, I don't think the commission order would have any different impacts than our proposal. It's in the longer term, probably four or five, six years, that it might begin to have an impact. Let's drill down that a little yep. further because, I mean, one of the biggest criticisms of the order is that it's going to, in essence, stymie renewable energy development in the PJM footprint and really stand in the way of folks who want to do these projects. Do you share that view? 
No, there are a couple of things. So one is in the very near term, we don't think it's going to have, and we're still in the middle of doing a super detailed analysis based on what's in the queue and the status in the queue and, and all those details. But our preliminary conclusion is that the order is likely to have very little impact on prices and clearing megawatts in the next auction or in the auction after that. Again, we're hoping the PGM's proposal to run two auctions this year is accepted, and if so, it's very unlikely that the order will have an effect on that. Now, based on the analysis we put out yesterday on gross cone and gross ACR and net cone and net ACR, it is true that new renewable resources have relatively high gross cost of new entry, relatively high net cost of new entry, and therefore unlikely to clear unless unit-specific variables result in them having a lower net cost of new entry. So as time goes by and there are more and more brand new renewable resources, wind and solar, that were not defined as existing under the FERC order, it will have a bigger impact on those resources, assuming that they're not economic. But I'm not willing to assume that they're not economic. I believe that the costs of wind and solar will continue to come down. And the goal is that they be economic. The goal of competitive markets, obviously, is to drive down costs to customers. We expect that the costs of wind and solar will continue to come down. And when competitors are faced with the rules and realize they have to be competitive, we expect that they will respond to that. We don't know what will happen, but that's what we expect. I saw in the report, just it said that ACRs for nuclear multi-unit nuclear is zero. Right. So we also put in a lengthy caveat about the nuclear. So we believe that our best analysis of nuclear is in the state of the market report, and we've done that on a unit-by-unit basis. And we believe that the implied capacity offer for every single individual nuclear unit, with the exception of two, Davis, Bessie, and Perry, are competitive and will clear under a typical capacity market pricing. Davis, Bessie, and Perry are not currently covering their avoidable costs through a combination of capacity market revenues and energy market revenues and unless a unit-specific review shows otherwise, we would expect them not to clear. But in general, we expect, again, based on individual unit analysis using Nuclear Energy Institute cost data and unit-specific net revenue data that we calculate, that all those units would clear. So it's unit-specific, it's not zero, but they are very likely to clear. So we expect for nuclear resources, the MOPR order to have no impact whatsoever. In fact, the MOPR order looks just like SMR, because the MOPA order allows existing units to offer at net avoidable costs, which is exactly what we said. What you put out yesterday as compared to the state of the market is sort of a, a place to start the conversation. Yes. So what we put out yesterday was a generic approach using one year's historic net revenues, 2019 net revenues, in order to put all the technologies on a comparable basis. But we do believe that the nuclear units were clear. We do believe that the net avoidable cost for every technology type, with just one or two exceptions, would clear. So any unit that's defined to be in any technology type that's defined to be existing would clear under the commission order. Now, that's not true for every unit type for new units, which would require a cost of new entry base offer. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is, I mean, going to take a couple steps back, positive order from FERC. Sounds like they laid down some parameters that you think are good and appropriate and should have been done a while ago. The short-term impact does not seem to be too dramatic. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes, the first sorry. couple of auctions, not much of an impact. But then going forward, how do you see this order playing out maybe after we get past these first two auctions? And how do you see it reshaping market dynamics in PJM? So I expect that it will mean that unless the cost for new renewables come down, that it will mean that new renewables will not clear in the capacity auctions. But I do, as I said, expect for, particularly for onshore wind and solar, that the cost will come down. And those who intend to offer them competitively in the markets will figure out ways to make them cost effective. But in addition, 
for wind and solar, wind in particular, the capacity market revenue is a very small part of the overall revenue. And again, so I don't expect that to significantly hinder the development of wind in PJM or even the development of solar. One of the issues that hasn't been talked about much in this MOPR discussion is what are the megawatts being contributed to reliability by renewables? Yeah. PJM has used a very crude method historically using a single discount rate applied to wind and a single discount rate applied to solar with unit-specific exceptions if they can be supported. That is clearly the wrong approach. PJM is developing a better approach called ELCC. Uh, we think that's the right way to go. We're not sure that... What does ELCC stand for? So, thank you for that question, Glenn. It's effective load-carrying capability. There you go. <laughs> but what it's attempting to reflect is the contribution of the marginal renewable resource to reliability. It's intended, although I don't think PJM's current proposal would implement it properly, but it's intended and if implemented properly would correctly reflect the incremental contribution. So, every wind resource, for example, would be reset to the incremental impact of the last wind resource and the same thing for solar. That's really appropriate because it's really necessary to get the right contribution. If wind and solar are contributing to reliability, it's important to correctly measure the extent to which they're really replacing thermal resources. To what extent can a solar resource, which can obviously only run during the day, unless it has battery backup, to what extent can it really replace a combined cycle? And the same thing's true for wind. ELCC is really the key to getting at that, and it's super important for this whole process to work to get ELCC right. Yeah, and I think this is an important point that you're drawing out in that PJM plans for reliability. They want to keep the system reliable under the extreme circumstances that it could be tested. Have you seen a pattern, this is probably buried in the state of the market somewhere, of wind and solar shying away from the capacity market because of capacity performance obligations? Are there more energy-only wind and solar resources than capacity markets, and are you noticing a difference there? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't remember off the top of my head the the ratio of, say, solar and wind non-capacity to capacity, and I don't know to what extent capacity performance has affected their view of being in the capacity market, but it certainly is true that wind and solar contribute a minuscule amount of capacity to the capacity market at the moment even though there are a lot of megawatts. Very disproportionate to the energy contribution. Yes, yes. But even the energy contribution is small. It's less than 3% for wind and solar. It's small enough for capacity, so that's right. And again, to be expected, given that there are significant discounts to the capacity contribution from renewables, and there are not on the energy side, we would expect that. But that just reinforces the point that the revenue contribution to the sustainability, the economic viability of wind and solar from the capacity market tends to be small. This is probably a little bit outside of your focus, but do Do you lend any credence to the concerns that have been voiced that this order will move states towards the FRR option and out of PJM? Or I've heard people say it's the beginning of the end for organized markets. There's a lot of hyperbole. I don't think that's correct. I mean, I think it will cause states to think about FRR. And we've done one report on what an FRR entity would look like in ComEd. And one of the conclusions we came to is it's likely to significantly raise the dollars paid by ComEd customers in Illinois compared to the current market. So FRR, when you look at it carefully, is not only not a panacea, it's likely to be worse for customers in the capacity market. Effectively, what you're doing by going FRR is saying that you are giving market power to whoever the local generation owner or owners are, is or are. And the way you define what they get paid is no longer defined by a competitive market. It's defined by bilateral negotiations. There has to be an arrangement struck between the generation owner and the state about what revenues will be. And that's radically different than 
a market and the discipline of a market. So what we pointed out in ComEd is that the required revenues could increase by as much as a billion and a half dollars over the capacity market. So that's clearly not a good idea for customers. And we're looking at potential FR entities and the parameters for those in other states. And so far, we're seeing a lot of difficulties associated with them and not any clear benefit at all for customers or renewables. One of the false dichotomies that's being set up here a little, and I saw this in some of the rehearing requests, I heard it in some of the stakeholder discussions, is that states basically have one of two roads to go down. Stay in the market, enjoy the benefits of the market, be subject to the MOPR and the new FERC rule, or go the FRR route and achieve your state energy goals. But at least I'm of the firm belief, and I'm guessing you are too, that states can achieve their clean energy goals consistent with market principles and consistent with market constructs. I was wondering if you could maybe offer some thoughts on that regard. If, if you were governor of Maryland or the chair of the commission in Illinois, how would you look at the desire to advance clean energy priorities in the state and take advantage of competitive market benefits. How would you structure that? One of the things to start by thinking about is what have the benefits of competitive markets been to the customers? As we know, energy prices in 2019 are the lowest they have been in the history of PGM since the beginning of competitive markets on April 1st, 1999. So there's just simply no question but that competition has brought costs down really significantly to customers. That's the purpose of competition is to make sure that energy is provided at the lowest possible cost to customers, and it has done that. So if I were in a position of authority in the state, I would think about what the trade-offs are. So just be logical. If I do an FR, am I going to end up paying more for everything, including renewable? Or if I stick with the markets and continue to pursue renewable resource targets, will that be a cheaper overall solution for the taxpayers and customers of my state? And it appears to me at the moment, based on our analysis so far, that the latter is clearly the lower cost option, that the markets are not designed to prevent renewables. They're designed to encourage competition from all sources and competitive renewables along with competitive supply from any source. And if the state's wish to continue to pursue uneconomic renewable resources, that's fine. That's entirely within their authority. But they shouldn't expect that to have an effect on the market. And I mean, the rational option to me is not to go FRR because I think that's actually pretty clearly worse for the states. And again, we're going to be doing detailed analysis state by state. But to the extent we can show and the states can understand and show themselves that it's a higher cost to their customers, that's not an option. I think the early response is kind of a knee-jerk response to the MOPR order because it appears to be anti-state policy. I don't think it is at all. I think it's drawing a rational line between the two areas of influence, two areas of authority, and leaving the state's authority to the states and the federal authority to FERC, and that's entirely appropriate. And I think ultimately the least cost solution for actual customers who have to pay the bills. Joe, you mentioned in your request for clarification that you did not believe that Reggie or the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, I believe that's the full acronym there, and the BGS, the auction in New Jersey, you did not believe that they should be considered subsidies. You can go into detail in there as to why. Would you mind giving some context on that? Sure. Reggie, as you say, is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. It's an agreement among a set of states, including several states in PJM, to put a price on carbon emissions. That price on carbon emissions has been very low by the definitions of what, for example, the social cost of carbon would be, say, around $50 a ton. It's been, almost without exception, less than $5 a ton in Reggie, so a relatively small price. So what Reggie does, it puts a price on carbon. The states then impose that on generators, and that becomes a cost of generation. It's an allowable marginal cost in the PGM market. It raises the offer price of those units and slightly raises the 
prices in PGM, we've calculated what the impact is on PGM prices overall. is quite low. But that is not a subsidy. That is, in fact, directly increasing the cost of these units, making the high-carbon output units less likely to dispatch, which was the intent, forcing them to internalize the cost of carbon emissions, and providing a market approach to addressing carbon emissions, which appears to be much of the motivation for state programs to pursue renewables. So in no way does that become a subsidy. If anything, it's exactly the opposite. It's increasing the cost rather than making it easier to emit pollution. Now, the revenues may be used to subsidize renewable programs, but that's, I don't think, what was intended by terming Reggie a subsidy. So if those revenues are then flow to the states and they're entirely fungible, they become part of the state budget. The state can do whatever they want with them. If the state chooses to subsidize renewables through them, then that gets treated like any other subsidy. It would be subject to the MOPR. Yes, yes. But to your point, I mean, we've, and this is a point I continue to make, we've done this with other pollutants besides carbon, yes. right? We internalize the cost of NOx and SOx and particulate matter and ozone and everything else. Like, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Right. right? The NOx and SOx programs have worked perfectly. They've worked just like markets. They're part of the marginal costs of generators in PGM, and they're not only not a subsidy, they're an appropriate way to reflect the social cost of those pollutants. Carbon prices do exactly the same thing. I mean, we have actually encouraged PGM to provide better data to all market participants about what the impact would be of a range of carbon prices so everyone can make a rational decision about whether a carbon price should be instituted and so far that's not occurred so we continue to encourage BGM to do that and get those numbers out there to the state authorities so they can think about this. A scenario that was enunciated to me and tell me your thoughts on this is because of the Reggie costs increasing the ENAS amounts of the energy and ancillary services revenue that's received when used as an offset for the capacity market would decrease your capacity offer and therefore act as a way as far as the broadness of the the subsidy definition in the MOPR order would act as a way that would make you more likely to clear. So for a polluting resource? Yeah. No, of course not. So, I mean, imagine that a unit is on the margin, so it's setting the price. Imagine it was setting a price of $50 and now it has a $5 carbon price in it, so maybe it's setting it at 53 so the price is now higher, but the costs are higher correspondingly. So the change in the ENS offset is zero. Yeah. So there's no impact whatsoever. So to the extent that carbon emitting resources paying Reggie carbon prices are on the margin, they're making prices higher, but they're not making their offset higher. They might make someone else's offset higher who actually doesn't pay the carbon price. They would make the offset higher, for example, for renewable resources and for non-carbon emitting resources. But that's really the intent, is to worsen the competitive position of carbon emitting resources by making them internalize that extra external costs, and it would not have the impact. It it would actually, the way I thought through this, have the potential to make renewables easier to clear. Correct. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So to the extent that the carbon price increased LMP, that would increase the payments to all other resources that are not emitting carbon, including renewables, and therefore increase their offset, reduce their capacity price, and increase the probability they would clear. Well, well, to your point, renewables are already, their trend is to get more competitive already. This would just accelerate their competitive position. That's all it would do. Yes. That's a significant part of the point of a carbon price. A carbon price would make non-carbon emitting resources more competitive. competitive. And and the ultimate definition of that would be one that emits zero carbon, like solar and wind. Right. Just like NOx and SOx emitting resources and mercury emitting resources got less competitive when their pollutants were regulated. Yes. So Obviously, this is not done. There's more to go here. Joe, what are your next steps as far as the order, the request for rehearing? Today, there were a ton of requests that came in. I signed up a long time ago for alerts on the orders, probably two years ago when it first came out, and my email just exploded today. I probably got about 
700 emails. Yeah, so was there was a lot. Where does this go from here? So our next steps are to continue to do analysis. So we will be doing an analysis of what we think the near-term impacts of the order will be. We're in the middle of doing that. It's quite complicated. We have to look at who's in the queue and all the status, everything in the queue, and construct a supply curve. We're in the middle of doing that. We hope to be done with that in another week or two. We will publish that as soon as it's available. We're continuing to do state-by-state analysis of FR options as requested by people or as we think necessary just in order to inform market participants about what the impact is. So we're continuing to do analysis, continuing to get it out there, continuing to discuss it with participants, continuing to discuss the issues also with PJAM about Moper and about what the long-term future of the capacity market is. Since we're wrapping up here, one of the things to conclude on, a lot of people have had a lot of reactions to the order and what it means. The one thing that's clear this order means is a lot more work for Joe Bowering and monitoring <laughs> analytics. And one, I applaud you because it seems like you're diving right in you know, and offering this analytical stuff, but you're going to have an awful lot to do just on the implementation side. And I hope folks realize that and not only realize it, but appreciate the good work that Joe's going to have to do in this regard. Yeah, so it will mean more work. We're prepared to do that. We have upgraded our software, our interface with participants significantly since uh, the last time we were doing detailed ACR and MOPA reviews. We've been doing MOPA reviews under the current rules for several years. We've evaluated between 20 and 40 unit-specific MOPA submissions over the last couple of auctions because that's been what the rules required. So we're, we're prepared to do that. We have the expertise, the staff to do it. And yeah, it will be more work, but it's the right work. Last question on that, Joe. If you were to handicap, where does this end up? I think it goes into effect. I think PGM runs two auctions this year. I think a lot of the hubbub dies down and people are more realistic about what the outcomes are. And and this is not going to be the last word, as nothing is ever the last word in capacity market auctions, but uh, I think it's a significant step, and people will have to decide how to deal with the fallout. Well, let's switch gears to another competitive topic that's sort of new to PJM's markets, competitive bidding for transmission projects and development of those. Over the past couple of years, and we really haven't discussed this on the podcast at all, but there's been a movement uh, about to include in the bidding analysis what the cost guarantees and what cost caps in proposals mean and ensuring that the language that is used, there's some teeth behind that to actually stick to what is guaranteed or what is offered in the proposal. So it's taking the words from what were written and sort of quantifying them into what's actually going on there. Up until recently, unless I'm wrong here, the IMM was not really involved with the competitive bidding evaluation process at all, but you've stuck your hand up recently and said you want to be involved with that. There's been some push back from stakeholders. Can you give us sort of a quick synopsis of where we stand with this, what your interest is, why you want to get involved with this, and where we are? Sure. So competition and transmission has been one of the areas that has received very little attention since the beginning of RTOs and ISOs in 1999 or thereabouts. We have been saying for some years, at least five or six years, particularly since Order 1000, that competition in transmission is essential to helping to spread the benefits of competition throughout the markets and to extend the benefits from the energy and capacity markets. So we believe in competition for transmission. We've been saying that for some time. There are a number of ways to implement it. One is simply to have competition for capital and make it clear that the rates of return being granted for transmission assets are well above the market and to allow actual market competition to provide that capital. So that's one area. 
But as you say, more recently, partly as a result of a decision by the MRC, we are increasingly involved in the review of competitive projects. Joe, if you don't mind, just to clarify, MRC is one of PJM's stakeholder committee groups. It's probably the most attended and tracked of the meetings. Right, it's a senior committee. That's where serious serious work gets done. (laughs) So pursuant to a decision by the MRC, we are increasingly involved in the review of competitive projects. So one of the key difficulties in comparing projects, for example, the project being built by a transmission owner under old-fashioned cost-of-service regulation and a project proposed to be built by a competitor who is guaranteeing a cap on the total revenue requirement by year is how do you compare those? There's certainty in one case, uncertainty in another. What's the actual degree of the guarantee? Is there any uncertainty in it? So you have to take a very careful approach to evaluating those and, and have a systematic, clear, logical approach to doing the financial analysis. We've done that kind of financial analysis for generating projects. The same kind of modeling applies for transmission projects. But here we have to allow for bandwidths of uncertainty for both the cost of service approach, which is likely to have a bigger bandwidth of uncertainty, and the guarantee. But the guaranteed project may not guarantee every element of cost, so that has to be evaluated. And we have to look at the history, for example, of transmission owners. What did they submit when they first proposed a project? What did that ultimately cost customers? What's the variance? And make sure that we're capturing that variance in the analysis. So being able to compare a capped project to a non-capped project is tricky, requires a careful attention requires addressing risk, and that's what we intend to contribute. We're going to be involved in the financial analysis of these projects. We're talking to PGM about access to data on some of the historical projects to make sure we have an historical context for evaluating the new ones, but that's our goal going forward. And we will see, as we saw from the additional language added to the relevant manual, that we will have access to all the data being submitted by both capped and non-capped projects to allow us to make those comparisons. So it's interesting. It's a new area. It's an area that's critical to extend competition into, and that's going to be the role we play. I don't mean to speak for the transmission owners when I say this, but my understanding of their concern is that this would have the effect of redefining the market monitor's relationship with the TOs and with PJM as part of this process. Do you acknowledge that at all? Is that a fair argument, or are they way off base? So I don't think it's redefining it. It's certainly changing it, and the TOs are not as used to having scrutiny of their behavior as they're going to have to get used to. not clearly used to having competition and they will have to get used to it. So it will be a change and it's a change in the world that's being faced by transmission owners and of course they prefer not to change, they prefer not to have competition, but that is going to be part of the world going forward. So it is a change but it's well within our jurisdiction, our bailiwick in terms of overall PGM markets. We think transmission and competition and transmission is clearly within that. So it will change our relationship. It will change our relationship with PGM as well, but it's not changing the rules about the relationship. It's just a new area. So the planning people at PGM are not as used to dealing with us as the markets people, but that will change. And the TOs are not as used to dealing with us as the generators in PGM, but that will also change. So it's evolution. It's an increase in competition and the role of competition in PGM markets and I think that's a good thing. One of the arguments that I have heard on this is, you know, part of the grand bargain that was made here in the beginning was that TOs had their geographic monopolies. They kept those in exchange for this sort of regulatory oversight, but as part of that maintained authority over their areas. And there's this argument that their areas of authority are slowly being pulled out from beneath them. Have you heard that argument, first of all? And if so, I mean, is it a fair argument? I'm not sure I've heard 
burger, but I don't think it's fair or accurate. When transmission companies joined PJM, they gave up certain planning authority to PJM. That was part of the deal, and so there's nothing different about that. I mean, the thing that was added to this process and the arrangement was Order 1000, which explicitly said we need to think about how to introduce competition in the transmission sector. And without any question that, when and if it occurs, uh, to any significant extent, will be a very significant change in the way that transmission owners are treated. But that's part of the evolution of competition. So competition did not exist for transmission assets, did not exist truly when PJM was formed. But under Order 1000 for PJM, as well as other RTOs and ISOs, it's now part of the world of markets, and everyone's going to have to adapt to it. Another thing that I sort of understand from this process is PJM will still have the ultimate decision-making authority, correct? You are developing your separate analysis, and you would be giving it to PJM as an advisory thing, but it doesn't change who actually has authority to recommend to the board which projects go into the RTEC. Right. So PJM has the authority, and the PJM board has the authority to make the decision. We will be providing our views to PJM management as well as the PJM board, and the PJM board can do with it as they like. If we thought that there was a bad decision made, and for example, a competitive project was chosen when it shouldn't have been, or a rate-based rate of return project was chosen when it shouldn't have been, we still have the right to take that to FERC if we thought we needed to and have FERC make the ultimate decision. So I think that's new and our role has not happened before and it will change going forward. So I think that's a new element. But yeah, PGM management and the PGM board have the authority to make these decisions. We are not being given the authority to do that. Really, all we're being given is access to data and the explicit ability to an expectation that we will evaluate these to help ensure all participants in the PGM market so this is being done fairly and rationally. The last major topic that I want to talk about that's going on in the stakeholder process is this problem statement and issue charge that the IMM has sponsored on taking a holistic reevaluation of the annual revenue right and financial transmission right construct and this is the whole determining what happens with overpayment of congestion and making sure it goes back to load, but then it also has created a financial market that has monthly auctions, and there are financial marketers who are involved with buying and selling of these FTR rights. You have brought this problem statement before the PJM stakeholders to, in the way that I understand it, basically re-envision how the system is modeled. Is that a fair way to describe it? I would say what we want to do is to return the FDR design to its original intent. The original intent is really simple. It's to return congestion revenues to load. Congestion is simply the difference between what load pays and generators receive. It's money that load pays that is not paid to a generator that needs to be returned to load. And for all the complexity that gets added to congestion, that's all congestion truly is. And FDRs were designed initially and need to be returned to the design that says let's return congestion to those that actually pay it. And we believe it should be paid back to load on an LSE by LSE basis. That calculation can be done. We are doing it currently. We put it in the state of the market report and show, for example, zone by zone, the difference between the amount of congestion paid and the amount of congestion returned. Overall, load has received less than all congestion payments back, and that should change. Load should have the right 
to receive all the congestion. If they wish to sell it to an FDR holder at a discount, for example, in return for giving up the rights to variable congestion to get a fixed payment, that's fine. The FDR market can look very much like it does now, but it would give customers, and Load in particular, the right to specify a price. At the moment, Load has to simply accept whatever price FTR buyers are willing to pay for it. That's not how a market works. Markets have two sides, and in this case, the owners of congestion, Load, should have the ability to determine whether they want to sell off the rights to congestion and for how much. What do you envision this looks like? What we envision it looks like is the principle is that Load has the right to congestion payments. That can be defined mathematically. It's not based on the archaic, at best, current path-based construct that PGM continues to use. Everyone knows from the very beginning of PGM, given all those debates at the time in the late 90s, that wholesale power markets are networks. They're not a series of paths. A path-based construct has nothing to do with the way the congestion is actually incurred. So we would define congestion as the difference between what load pays bus by bus and is received by generators. Load would have a right to receive that. And then there would be a structure that would permit load to sell those rights to congestion to FTR buyers if they wish to do it at a price that the sellers agreed to, and then all the complexity of the FTR market could exist on top of that. The basic idea being, if this were to work properly, is that Load would have the rights to congestion, would have the right to sell it at a price they chose. It's really no more complicated than that. I mean, there's lots of complicated mechanics that can be added to it, but really the concept is very simple. I think Joe's going to show up at a stakeholder meeting with that make FTRs great again. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, mean, congestion and FTRs are widely misunderstood, and the concept of FTRs has gotten very distorted over the years. And we, as you said, let's make FTRs great again. Let's, well, let's, let's, let's restore them to their original Well, that, original and that purpose. was a big deal when we were doing Retail Choice in the early days Absolutely. in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. I mean, that was critical to the success of this whole thing working, right? right? right. So, and people tend to forget the historical roots of these things. All right, we should probably start to wrap things up. But before we do, Rory and I like to do this segment where we offer free advice to mm-hmm. people. I've heard you offer free advice to the governor of Maryland, <laughs> uh, the chairman of the Illinois Commerce Commission, <laughs> TOs, anybody else? You got the chairman of FERC, you got a new CEO of PJM, anybody you'd like to give some free advice to? This is your platform. So, all right. So, first of all, I wasn't offering free advice to anybody. <laughs> We're simply presenting our views of how to make markets work competitively. That's always our goal. So, we're not giving individual advice to anyone in particular, but we wouldn't presume to give advice to any elected official. But what we do say is that competition has been demonstrated to make customers better off. Its purpose is to make costs lower to customers. And so if I'm giving free advice is let's support competitive markets and make competitive markets work as well as we possibly can. Amen. Amen. As we're all finding out, competition isn't easy. But the reason we're in this struggle is because at the end of the day, we're building a better model for the consumers. And we've all seen the old world where the motivations weren't to drive down your costs to deliver your product in the lowest possible ways to consumers. We've all seen that world in this space. But we have to remember, we don't want to go back to that world. We want to continue to work on these competition issues. And they're tough. They're very, very tough. And they seem to be getting tougher by the day. But it's a fight worth fighting. So thank you for being at the front lines of that battle, for sure. We really appreciate it. Joe, while we're making up slogans here, uh, <laughs> I want to I run this one by because it came to me the other day. You, you've seen Star Wars, right? Not the latest one. Yeah, but you know, it's the, may the force be with you? Yes. 
What if we said, like, may the market forces be with you? Is that, is that good? Is, is that, what do you guys think? All right. Anyway, Joe, we really appreciate you being on the show. It was wonderful and insightful as always. I always appreciate hearing your witty repartee in stakeholder meetings as well. So we will look forward to the next opportunity for that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and honor to participate in your program. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-R at gtpowergroup.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.